Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and I want to welcome you to episode 49. This one is going to feature a very special guest, maybe one of the most famous people we have had on the podcast, Nathan Edmondson. Do you know him? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. If you do, it may be because you read comic books, and he has really just blown up on the scene over the last uh, eight or ten years or so. And he, his comic books actually not only reach comic book readers, which is a huge audience, uh, for those of you that are not aware, there is a huge audience there, but comic books often get turned into movies, and some of Nathan's are in the process of doing that now, so he's going to talk to us a little bit about that and sort of the entrepreneurial way that he has uh, really uh, risen as a writer of comic books, but also as he has helped translate them into Hollywood-produced films. But one of the most important things Nathan actually wanted to come on and talk about, which we will hear about, is his philanthropic work. He's really involved, believe it or not, in Africa, uh, helping uh, you know fend off poachers of uh, wild game. So we're going to learn all about what he's doing there. So um, also at the end of this episode, we're going to feature a song by Matthew Fowler. The song is Beginners. And I want to just say we had Matthew on episode 47. He was fantastic. I ended up seeing him live later that night and the show, it was in Orlando and it was a sold out show. And um, he just just killed it. And uh, just, it was really, really amazing. He's, he's great to see live. He's on a 40 city tour right now across the country. He's a little more than halfway on that as I'm recording this, so I've been seeing him uh, all over social media popping up. But I do want to apologize to Matthew and to the listening audience, because for whatever reason, when we loaded that episode up um, almost a month ago now, uh, only like four minutes of it were actually on the uh, various podcast platforms. I don't know what happened in the translation, but I just realized it recently, and so we reloaded it. And so if if you were confused why episode 47 was only like four minutes long, uh, go back and re-listen to it. And if you haven't listened to it yet, go back and listen to it because Matthew uh, really has some amazing things to say about life as a musician, life as an entrepreneur, and also sort of the debate maybe he and many others have about whether they should go to college or embark on a career first. So I encourage you to check out episode 47 with Matthew Fowler, and hopefully you'll also enjoy the song we're going to play at the end of this episode called Beginners. Of course, uh, if you're just a beginner to listening to this podcast, make sure you go onto either your Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and subscribe because that's when you'll get all the new alerts for the new episodes. In addition, if you're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are all over that. Look for the Agents of Innovation and you can come to our website, agentsofinnovation.org, to read the blog posts that accompany each episode but also that'll direct you to all those social media sites. So thank you again for listening. Thanks for sharing the Agents of Innovation podcast with your friends, neighbors, and colleagues. And we really appreciate your feedback. And if you haven't reviewed this podcast yet on iTunes, please do that. We really appreciate it. It'll help us reach more people. So for now, sit back, relax, and let's get to another interview, this one with Nathan Edmondson.
I want to welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast my friend Nathan Edmondson. Nathan, uh, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Well, Nathan, uh, you and I met uh, probably, well, I think actually you were still in college when we met, and then you went on to uh, uh, a nonprofit uh, in the D.C. area, uh, and you um, uh, then all of a sudden, one day, uh, I look, and you're a comic book writer, and so uh, I, I say all that to introduce you to our audience, because uh, for those of you that don't know Nathan Edmondson, you're probably not reading uh, or following uh, comic books uh, because he's become um, a really well-known name. Um, he's known for the comic series Who is Jake Ellis as well as The Activity. Uh, he does that for Image Comics and he also uh, has The Punisher and Black Widow which he has written for Marvel Comics. And some of these um, have been turned into movies, some are being turned into movies uh, Nathan also, I know, does a lot of other things that we're going to get into later. But Nathan, uh, tell me what uh, sparked your interest in writing uh, one and two uh, comic book writing, and tell me a little bit about how you got into that. Ooh, um, well, I've always, you know, writing is something that goes back to you know early grade school, uh, and I didn't ever really consider pursuing it as a career until you know in college I started to think about it a little bit and then I went to work in Washington DC and had you know what was uh presumably or uh potentially a a career position a great career position a great career path but I had this itch to write and I was um I was actually uh, I would write stories there at work about people at work and I was working on short stories and things and I had a mentor um, that I brought some of my stories to starting in high school. He was a, a, a brilliant professor, uh, Bill Sessions, who knew Flannery O'Connor and uh, Hemingway and and, uh, um, and uh, actually Walker Percy wow. helped pay his way through grad school and was his son's godfather. Um, he Bill was sort of my writing mentor as I was doing it, you know, from high school on, but never really with the thought of necessarily doing it professionally. Um, and then in college, I started talking to him more and more about the craft and the career of writing. And, you know, his encouragement was always sort of go figure out, you know, go and learn what to write about, figure the world out. And then, then you can worry about writing. And uh, so um, anyway, with that kind of at my back, I uh, became acquainted with some people in the comics industry. Uh, I, I met them just geographically. And I, I didn't know much about comics. I, I didn't have much of a thought about comics other than I knew that they were um, a, a sort of wellspring of popular culture and IP. And uh, But I, I started to realize I loved art. I have a degree in art and art history. Um, and I thought this might be fertile ground to start to plant because I had a lot of different ideas. I, I knew that. And it turned out it was. I, I pitched my first book, Olympus, um, about uh, the Greek brothers, Castor and Pollux alive today it was kind of an adventure sci-fi series uh it was picked up by one of the biggest publishing houses image we um got a lot of movie film and television heat with it and you know from there went on to do a number of other titles and and before i knew it like you said i was there was a comic book writer and i never never a year before that if you'd asked me i, I don't think i would have said i'm going to be a comic book writer um and uh you know the other thing that always was at my back with writing was um you know, starting in first grade, I was reading Michael Crichton and uh, actually 
went to go to med school just because I thought that like Crichton, if I, if I got a medical degree, you know, maybe I'd become as brilliant as he, you know, as he was and have insights in the world like he did. And, uh, you know, I, so there's always part of me that, um, was just feeding off the admiration I had for his genius. So, um, you know, I think that, that was part of me saying, I've got to try to pursue this. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, from there to other kinds of writing. And we should mention, Nathan, uh, you, uh, you're a native of Augusta, Georgia, right? That's right. Yep. And I know you went, uh, you went to college at Mercer, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. In Macon, Georgia. And then I know, uh, after you had your stint in DC and, uh, you had moved. Uh, you and your wife moved back to uh, Macon, and I remember actually catching up with you once there uh, some years back. But uh, you know, you don't really. Um, you know, now now I know you live out in uh, the Los Angeles, California area, right? Yeah, that's. Um, I'm just outside of LA, and uh, you know, somewhere out of high school, I was over in Europe for a little while. So I did this sort of Georgia, Europe, DC, Georgia, California route. Um, and, yeah, uh, that's a that's so a typical coming, route for most people. Yeah, it's, I mean, you just there's so many familiar faces all along the way. Uh, especially, I got to live in a castle when I lived in France, which was pretty special. But it was you know it was crowded with everybody from the hood. Um, but you know, part of that was after living in D.C., close to Atlanta, Paris, coming out here. I just I, I'm already ready to be out of L.A. County, and certainly didn't want to be that close to the city. But other things let us out to the. Uh, to the, the outskirts, as it were. Now, I imagine, I'm going to make an assumption here, Did uh, uh, what brought you to L.A.? Was it the uh, basically the movie writing, screenwriting? Kind of. So I was commuting, if you will. I, I was traveling out to L.A. a lot, um, and then uh, uh, kind of had my sights set on, you know, at some point I'm going to need to go out there and be on, you know, the West Coast and kind of pursue, you know, pursue the way things are going there, the film and television work. And um, we had a job opportunity to come out this direction. Um, and it, it, so it was sort of, there was a little bit of a kismet to where we were able to park it uh, right outside of LA. And uh, ironically, after a few years of it, I'm like, don't need it anymore. I can do this from anywhere. So let's, <laughs> I, uh, my, my ad, I still appreciate LA, but my magnetic attraction to it is, uh, you know, is pretty much depleted. <laughs> so Nathan, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about. So you know, it's funny when you first got into comic book writing. I was like, wow, I didn't see that one coming. I mean, I know you're a gifted writer, and uh, but you know, I guess when people think of writing, and, and I know you're, uh, I met your dad once, and he's a professor, and he's written some some scholarly academic books, and uh, and, and and so I uh, was wondering, you know, what got you into uh, the comic book side? Uh, how did you? kind of pursue that avenue and then you mentioned a minute ago you know obviously comic books have a lot of art it's very they're very illustrative obviously uh and so do you partake in uh the drawing do you work with other artists for that no i so i mean i I work with the artists i don't um you know one of the talents that i found that i had coming into comics and some of this might be you know i did some oil painting myself i drew you know i was a sketch artist i did classes and all this uh, but I think that what I had, and it's the same, you know, it's the same gene that uh, helps me when doing photography, for example, is I, I had a good eye for art and a good eye for good, uh, talented artists, especially new talent. So one of the um, skill sets I brought to comic was not just 
you know, being able to craft the story, but being able to identify a good collaborator and find a good chemistry. So in my books, I was fortunate enough to find a number of new talents, uh, new talented artists uh, with whom I, I started fresh on a series who now have gone on to become, you know, m- much more significant, winning more awards than, you know, I ever did. Um, and, uh, you know, so in that way, I, I think you find somebody, and, and I think that this is sort of ideal in other creative endeavors or really all businesses if you can find somebody with whom you have good chemistry and you don't have to micromanage dictate or or really even engage in too much dialogue that's ideal you do what you do well they do what they do well and the two you know meet in a uh, uh sort of um in in an orbit that's uh, that's stable so um being able to identify good art having a, an eye for that was um you know, was pretty native to me. And, uh, you know, so working with artists I, has not been something that's been required a lot of effort for me other than, you know, timelines, because they can take forever, <laughs> especially because I write very quickly. So, um, you know, so in that way, I, I write a script, I kind of can, you know, I, I write a script with uh, a lot of the visuals sort of in mind, but I also try to divorce myself as much as possible from, um projecting my own uh images if you will onto the page because i want to let the artist do what they do best um you know if, if you've got joe satriani on guitar you kind of don't want to tell him how to play you know <laughs> here's the solo i want you to play you just kind of let him do what he does right and that's i think that the, the right recipe you want with anybody talented you want somebody talented that you trust and i was fortunate enough to have that relationship with uh, most of the artists i worked with um i'm doing less comic work now i've kind of moved on to some other things but uh what i love i mean there's a there's a a joy that i found getting into comics that um is like instant gratification because you immediately see your idea realized in really fantastic fashion uh and and in ways that you never anticipate it's a surprise every piece of art every page that comes in it's a surprise because you projected it in one way um by writing it, it lived in your mind and then you hand it over and it comes to life in somebody else's mind and they, you know, bring it to life, uh, give it life on paper, on the page. And to see that it's a, it's a real drug. And especially if you are, I mean, I'm just an art lover. I love art. It's I mean, I pursued one of my degrees was like I said, in, in art history. So to me, that was such an attraction to working in comics. There's nowhere else in the world that art thrives like it does in the comics industry uh, where artists can work and get paid for their work and thrive. Now, obviously you have to make distinctions between artist and illustrator, which can be an aggravation when working. But the point is um, that to me was so much of the joy. If you write a screenplay that lives in your head and it maybe, if you're lucky, we'll see the screen one day and it may go through five other drafts and five other writers and it may take five years. But if you're working with somebody on a comic book, you can see it in five days and then it's on the shelf in five months. You know, that gratification is pretty unique uh, in, the, in in any storytelling industry. Well, that's fantastic. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess I guess when you also uh, are, are seeing that. So you're writing uh, the script, in a sense, for the comic book. And then you're also and then, you know, as you mentioned, the artist is sort of putting that into um you know illustrative you know uh, you know they're 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 illustrating uh something that you're writing but then from there you're you you may also see a leap to the big screen and seeing how that's done differently how i know some of your 
uh, comic books have have gone to the big screen. Some are in the works. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the process of what it went from from uh, you know the comic book? Uh, how how you were sort of uh, discovered or how you reached out maybe uh, to some of the folks in Hollywood, uh, some filmmakers, and and then also like what was that process like? Uh, kind of trans transferring it from the comic book to the big screen. Um, well, I have I have representation uh, who managers agents who take my you know so if I, if I put out a new script or a new comic or you know they take it out and shop it. Uh, I'm fortunate enough now that I have a lot of relationships um, with people either who have picked up my work before or at least I've had meetings with and you know gone to dinners with and things so that they have a sense of the kindness. So if I say hey I've got a new something coming out they kind of say they know what space it might be in uh they have a sense of you know my writing background and um it, they're immediately hopefully ready for a dialogue about what this next thing is you know and then hopefully i've surprised them with something new and original that, that's exciting the point is you you take an idea like that you get it in front of those uh executives and producers and you you know hope for a sale hope for a package that you know, goes to a sale. So my movie at Fox, who is Jake Ellis, uh, about which hopefully by the time this airs, there'll be a very big announcement. Um, you know, it's been a, a kind of long journey with it. We had one director who <clears throat> didn't quite work out um, and some other attachments. And, uh, you know, just there, there was so much excitement around the sale. It was a big sale at Fox. There's a lot of excitement around it, a lot of excitement around the story, the process. Um, and yet we found ourselves sort of floating in the water for a little while. And the reason is you, you kind there, there's a lightning in the bottle element that has to happen. And by wild coincidence, we had this incredible lightning in a bottle thing happen with this one. And, but it took several years of it, of it sitting, you know, uh, uh, sitting kind of dormant for that to happen, for the stars to line up. Um, yeah, I'm Another, trying to remember. I feel like what has it been about ten years since you came out with Who Is Jake Ellis? Oh, ooh. Uh, I'm trying to remember when you first you know, actually, uh, uh, you know, gave I, that to I, me, I, and I think it was about a year after you probably came out with it. So I, I don't think it was that long, but honestly, I'd have to look. Like, yeah, dude, maybe it was about eight years I, ago. I don't know, but anyway, well, uh, that that was anyway. Anyway, so good to hear hear about that process. Um, so have so that's is that will that be the first one of yours to come to the big screen? Yeah, presumably. I have three right now in some early stage of production that I've uh, sold. Um, we're, we should be rolling out announcements on them fairly soon. Uh, probably that'll make it because we're working with a big A-list actor shooting schedule, and he wants to make it happen fairly quickly. So uh, in that case, yeah, I expect that'll be the first one out, but. Um, you know, the, the, there is no science and all chaos in these processes. So um, so let me ask you it, something, and, and this may be different for different people, but for you, uh, as you're transferring this uh, from a comic book to uh, the screen, uh, how involved are you? Are you, inv are you one of the screenwriters, or how, how, how are they brought on other writers? How, how, how are you involved in that uh, picture? No, so I'm a producer on everything, and that... You know that there's not a, a, a um, an automatic meeting to that necessarily. So, you know, you can be a producer, which may just mean you get profit participation or a name. But 
And these movies have been fortunate enough to be significantly involved in the story development. Um, but we have with, with my book, the activity, <clears throat> Ken Nolan, who wrote black Hawk down, uh, and, um, uh, only the brave and, uh, you know, a number of other fantastic movies. He adapted the book for screen. Um, early on, we consulted some about story and at the outline, but at some point he kind of took and went with it. Uh, the writer for who is Jake Ellis is absolutely fantastic. Uh, and we haven't announced who it is yet because we're announcing, at least I don't think we have the entire package at once. Um, and, uh, you know, I, there's, um, I, I was hired to write something for somebody on another project where, um, I think what I can say about that one, but basically the, the majority of the writing and that ad- adaptation was mine. Uh, I, have also been hired off of an outline before to, I wrote a TV pilot, um, for a producer that was based on a sort of rough outline that they had. So, you know, the process when, when somebody's adapting your book, it can go, you know, you could be the one who adapts it or, uh, you can be kind of like, we'll call you when it's done. Um, I, I think in every process I've had, I've been somewhere in the middle of that. And, uh, you know, to me, I, I'm excited for another artist, you know, just like an artist taking, you know, the words and illustrating it for the page. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Ken Nolan, for example, and he takes that script and I'm like, I want to be the first one in line to read the finished product uh, and see the movie because I'm just a fan. And so that part of the process is a lot of fun when you're working with people whose work you're a fan of, who you admire, it just adds excitement. Um, you know, it, in an excruciating excitement too, when you're, you know, <laughs> waiting on it to come in and, uh, you know, are they finished yet? And, and all this, cause, uh, you know, it's, it's like Christmas when it comes in. So, yeah, well, that's exciting. Um, well, I've also seen here that you've written, uh, ultimate Iron Man, Black Widow, the Punisher and Red Wolf for Marvel comics. Tell me how has it been working with them and, 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 and tell me a little bit more about ultimate Iron Man. Um, I when you know I haven't written for Marvel now and actually I haven't done much comics writing in a good while now. Like I said, I've been pretty occupied with some other things. Um, although I still have a couple books that uh, will probably be coming out fairly soon that they just haven't uh, premiered yet. But um, you know, Marvel. I, I was fortunate at Marvel in that uh, I got into a relationship where I had I don't want to say carte blanche, but a lot of freedom in choosing collaborators and kind of pursuing my own stories. Ultimate Iron Man was one of the first things I did. Then they wanted something that was collaborative or, or consonant with, uh, what was the movie at the time? Iron Man three. Mm-hmm. So I came up with a story that served a little bit as a dish up for them to go and, and, uh, uh, and, and make the movie, um, with, we did a limited series and kind of reimagined the Mandarin, uh, in obviously the movie reimagined the Mandarin villain, but in a slightly different way than we did. Um, and, uh, worked with a great artist and it was a, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was, a. uh, we had conversations after that series about different ways to deal with Tony Stark. Um, I think, uh, I remember, uh, well, I probably can't repeat what the editor in chief said to me at the time about him, but basically we could have gone a lot darker with uh you know with tony stark in a way that probably would have been fairly in uh inconsistent or at least incompatible with the all ages four quadrant you know marvel cinematic universe that was just starting to explode at the time um so in you know that's a unique thing when you're working on a project that has uh you know that, that has movie connections comics sometimes doesn't know 
what to do with it because do you follow the movie? Do you create your own thing? Do the you know fans who come out of the movie theater want to buy the comic? Are they going to be disappointed if it's too different? You know, there's some interesting things to navigate. So when I worked on Black Widow, um, we, which I think was at the time, I don't know, maybe it, this this stat's been trounced, but it was the we had the longest running, highest selling Black Widow run at at the time, and part of that was we were not overly concerned with connecting it to what was going on you know, in, in the world at large on the big screen and all that, we just wrote a comic that we thought was awesome and, uh, readers, uh, responded. And I, and fortunately I worked with an artist who's extraordinary on that and people would buy just for that reason. Uh, different on Punisher, they, I was approached and they said, you know, Punisher, we haven't been able to sell this book in a long time. It's just for some reason it it hasn't kind of, it's, it's time has not come back around. Um, but they asked me specifically if I would tee up a Punisher series that could then be adapted for television because that's where they wanted to go with it. And that was all sort of under wraps at the time, but that was the query. And so we came up with a, uh, a pitch where the Punisher was now in LA and, and it was more ground level involved, a lot more tactical military, um, you know, special operations elements that grounded uh, grounded the character, and then if you've seen the the Netflix series, there's a lot of elements that indeed you know sprung from our approach to that you know to that universe and uh, um, and to that character. So you know in that case, they wanted us to have an eye on 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 that ball, but you know we weren't we had nothing to derive it from, so we still had a pretty white sheet um, available to us to approach. And we, uh, we kind of, I picked the collaborator I'd worked with on the activity cause we both had the same sensibilities about writing realistic special operations, uh, special missions unit style comics. And we wanted to bring that to the character. Well, that's awesome. Well, Nathan, uh, we've heard a lot about your comic book writing and your, uh, your time in, in the, uh, motion picture, uh, arena now and 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 in la but i know you've got a lot of other things that you do with your time which i don't know uh how you have time for all these things but um i guess uh this is just sort of something i i find actually with a lot of very productive people uh they're doing a lot of things uh so i know um there are two things of interest uh you may or may not want to talk about uh in detail but i i know um You've you've worked with some special ops uh, military, um, and I know you've also gone to Africa and have helped uh, a nonprofit that is uh, sort of tackling um, uh, poaching. Uh, so uh, talk to me a little bit about these uh, these uh, extracurricular interests you have here. <laughs> well, it's ironically, um, you know, I say I write fast, so I do end up with a lot of free time, I guess, you know, somewhere between the kids and the, you know, home responsibilities and you know, writing and meetings and things. I still end up with a little too much idle time because I, I work, um, you know, well, it's, I mean, it's the same with all your innovators. It's cocaine, right? That's, that's what drives us all and gets us up at 2am and keeps us working. Um, that's the secret. If you're wondering what the one secret is, it's that, okay. uh, yeah, that's right. Can I say that on the air? I've gone to Hollywood. <laughs> Um, no, it's, uh, well, we found the secret to AM, but, but unfortunately it had nothing to do with anything recreational, um, and everything to do with a toddler vomiting. So, uh, you know, as far as Af- Africa is interesting, so I, I was working with some guys in, in the military community, um, on some totally unrelated stuff. And I found out about, um, some work being done in the counter poaching conservation 
world of um, uh, down in specifically in Kruger National Park, but in South Africa and Namibia, Botswana. And I had in, I, my first thought was we should do a documentary, a docuseries on this. And I ended up uh, paying for flights for head ranger from one of these groups to come over to the u.s to talk about this and then i ended up going with a couple of guys back to uh, back to africa with them back to south africa specifically and uh, and I, I wrote an article about it which you know i put up online and uh didn't much know what you know beyond that i didn't have a big purpose but i ended up doing a lot there i was involved with you know night vision training and tracks and uh, you know, uh, uh, coming up with different solutions for canine programs and just found myself as part of the team. And as part of the team, I kind of did what I do, which is just start to spout ideas, ideas about funding, ideas about how to carry this on ideas about what we could do next and how to do this and that. And I came back and sat down with some of the people involved with this project, some of the people involved with the funding from this side. And they, uh, told me, that we want to put together a nonprofit to carry this work on because it's kind of been done disparately. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in, in these individual effort kind of ways, or at least in, uh, um, you know, sort of isolated effort ways with not a lot of thought to what is the five-year plan for this, but let's go over and do this this year. And they were doing extraordinary work, but we sat down and came up with the idea for this nonprofit, which, uh, is now called edge or the eco defense group. Uh, I was, I think, uh, I think I was the one who gave it the name at the brewery, um, that day in, in North Carolina. And, um, suddenly found myself kind of, you know, it was like the bell started ringing louder and louder. And this, this opportunity to go over and out of the triple lifetime became a calling. So now I'm traveling back there a lot and I'm, uh, you know, probably more full time, not probably I'm, I'm more full time, working on this than I am anything else. Um, so, uh, writing and other things have taken a back seat. I'm still writing I'm still pursuing things, but, um, I'm kind of doing that on the flights or doing that on the weekends here and, uh, spending most of my time right now, well, fundraising, uh, for edge and doing a lot of the other, uh, work with this team. And, um, it's a, uh, it's really an extraordinary project because unlike, you know, say a group of people to get together, which is certainly not the case for me and say, Hey, the rhino is going extinct. We want to go stop this. We want to go save some animals. Uh, instead we ended up over there with people saying, we need a tool that fits this problem. You know, we need something specific. Nobody else has the tools to, to fix this thing or to help, you know, solve or, or to help, uh, uh defend, you know, against this new threat, to these endangered species. And we were able to provide the answers to those questions, uh, or at least to begin to provide those answers. So we were formed out of need. Um, and the passion came afterward, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. where a lot of times in the nonprofit world, people have a passion to do something, but what you end up there is sort of raining cash down from 10 feet over the ground rather than what we're doing, which is very, very surgical. Um, it is very project oriented. So advantageously to us is, you know, 95% of every dollar donated to us or 95 cents out of every dollar, uh, it goes directly to a project. We're not formed with a big overhead. You know, we're very nimble and we're very specific. Um, but we're also diverse in, in our projects and things we're working on. So it, it's an amazing thing to be a part of. We're making history, you know, fundraising willing. Um, and we have access to areas that are literally the front lines 
of you know the poaching wars in all of Africa, uh, where the greatest species decimation, but also the greatest population biodiversity and you know greatest uh, speciation exists and is in need of defense and um, and in not just defense but in the development of communities and uh, surrounding areas. So um, this is. I, I had honestly not given a lot of thought to this. I mean, I think everybody can kind of say, oh, yeah, sure, I care about protect saving the rhino. Sure, I care about this. You know, but to really kind of look halfway around the globe and say, I specifically want to make a difference here and I know how. Um, even with our Go, like we put a GoFundMe online and I've been helping to promote that. It is really hard to get people to donate to a GoFundMe about a problem that is not immediately tangibly right. in front of them. So part of what I wanted to do was build a way in which donors and other interested parties could come over and experience the front lines of what we're doing behind the scenes in ways that no tourist can do, because then you have invested them and helped to foster their passion into this solution uh, to, to what is really a global crisis. And the other interest I had in this was after experiencing Kruger Park, after experiencing some of these areas where these animals live free, it was extraordinary to me, not just to go on safari, but to see a part of the world where people live in continents or, or in, uh, you know, uh, um, in as guests, I should say, as guests in the world of these extraordinary animals. You know, we had rhinos, we had giraffe, we had other animals in, in North America, but they have all been hunted to extinction. Uh, we don't in this country. There are very few places where we live subject to nature. You know, we build everything around us to kind of dominate nature and to protect ourselves from nature or whatever, which is part of, you know, part of humanity. And it's not, uh, you know, it's not at all a bad thing inherently. But to see the part of see parts of the world where nature dominates and where you don't get too attached to a fence, for example, because the elephant can knock it over. And the only solution is shooting the elephant. I, I thought I want my kids to experience this and to experience these animals alive and in the wild because there's nothing like that. No zoo can compare to seeing these animals thriving in their territory. And I realized after going over there, the likelihood that my kids would never experience some of these species and their kids is actually significant. Well, um, I like that uh, you're taking a, a, an innovative approach by giving people sort of experiences because I think, you know, that's how people will connect uh, mostly to that cause or to just the, the issue, the awareness uh, to what's going on. Um, I also noticed, uh, so the website for this is ecodefensegroup.org, right? That's right. Yeah, and, um, you know, by the way, uh, we love here at the Agents of Innovation podcast that uh, right there on the front page, uh, it says innovation to conservation. I love it. Um, so uh, you're bringing a lot of different innovative approaches, including, uh, you know, top-level technology, uh, partnering with uh you know, getting uh, U.S. military, U.S. Uh, military research, uh, partnering with, uh, with with some of the rangers and scientists on the ground and, you know, bringing, like, a, like you said, bringing uh, people there uh, to have some unique experiences. So if anyone is looking to travel to, uh, you know, South Africa and that area, uh, you know, you might hit up uh, ecodefensegroup.org and see if you might incorporate uh, some sort of experience with them. Uh, to to basically get more connected to the land and to the animals and and maybe develop a passion like Nathan like you have um, developed uh, and and you know you you talked about uh, the passion you now have uh, what was the first um, 
sort of uh, foot in the water for you in terms of, of just learning about this issue and, and getting connected with it personally? Well, I, I mean, I've, I've been an animal lover forever. You know, I've had pets and never missed it. And, and I think a lot of people can say this, but I think I've always had a sort of fantastic relationship with animals, which is, you know, always projecting my imagination and, and like consuming a lot of, you know, books, movies, magazines that involve kind of a, a world in which you live, you know, uh, I've got a Jurassic Park tattoo on my arm, which, uh, oh, we got Michael Crichton coming in here. Okay. I got yeah. You. Yeah. Right. So I, yeah, if you want to double the length of your podcast, I can talk about Crichton, but, they, but in, in Crichton, actually there, there's a, I think he spent a lot of time on safari, a lot of time in this world to, to, um, uh, to put Jurassic Park together, you know, to understand because it's the same thing. It's like these animals, which, um, you know, a world in which you're not at the top of the food chain, a world in which your, you know, humility is commanded by the environment. Um, so I think that I'm trying to think if there was like a, a, a spark moment. I mean, for me, interestingly, it's that the moments with the animals are incredible and there is no, there is no dream like being in the bush um, you know, be, you know, being in areas where you're afraid of lions and, you know, hearing elephants, but not being able to see them in the dark. And, uh, there's nothing like that. No dream compares. Uh, but I think what really kind of fanned the flame in my mind that, that turned this from a, um, an experience into a calling was the people, the rangers were working with the people who, you know, I like to say the rangers give their lives. We can give something, um, they also, the, one of the head rangers we, we've worked with says, my calling is to stand between the rhino and the poacher. You know, what is your calling? And he put that to me one time and he put it to a group as well. And I, and I said, well, my calling is to help, you know, my calling is not to stand between the rhino and the poacher. That's not, that's not, you know, what I do. Um, but I'm here to be a part of this. And there's a lot, like, there's a lot of things in the world I've helped. I've helped uh, the Guardian Group uh, with some things. They do uh, counter sex trafficking uh, along the I five quarter. That's incredibly noble, necessary work, and it's hard to turn your head, you know, from, you know, from what they do to look at anything else when you see how pressing the problem is. But I think that um, there's a way in which I talked about the stars aligning, but they kind of align for you, and you say, I see a path not just of something I care about, but I I can contribute something here, you know, and to find that is pretty unique. Um, if all you can contribute is $25 to our GoFundMe or to our site, that's, that's your part of this, you know, you're part of the team and that's your contribution and it is most welcome and $500 country, a $5,000 contribution. And I'll bring you over, you know, uh, and I'll, I'll incline you, I'll show you the people behind the scenes and you'll, you'll commit in the way that I have, um, or you'll at least commit to supporting those who are supporting those. So, um, it was seeing those people, their passion and their willingness to risk their lives. And there was something about that corner of the world. I just cannot wait to get back when I'm not there. I said, I want to move my kids over here for, you know, parts of their life to just experience the, the people over there, salt of the earth. Um, the, uh, you know, they're brave, they're noble, they're intelligent. Um, so I think it had more to do with the time I spent with the people building those relationships was what really drove me into the calling. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to say it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's like asking, 
I don't know. You know, you after I think my first trip, it did feel like coming out of the end of an adventure movie, right? Where the hero has been changed by this experience. And, you know, there's no one thing that you can point to and say, well, it was, you know, it was when you met this person, that's when everything changed. It was no, it's that your character by the end of it is changed by being subjected to, you know, what we did. We didn't witness anything. We participated in it. We lived it. And in that very first trip, and since then, we've been living it when we're there in our humble way and in, in the way that we do when we leave. There's people who live it and don't leave and live with the, you know, the um, uh, the lifestyle of, of these animals literally in their front yard. And so, um, yeah, I don't I, I, there wasn't a specific spark, but I think it just sort of grew from this fantastic reality that I read again, read about since I was a child to um, an actual reality that. I realized I had a role to play um, in preserving. Well, that's uh, really amazing, and uh, it was a, it's a great uh, story and a great inspiration. And uh, hopefully, you know, others may be listening to this that that want to learn more about about edge and about protecting uh, these animals from poachers. Uh, but you know, even if this is not the cause uh, for a listener, I just loved uh, your passion for why how uh, a certain cause uh you became interested in and, and just experiencing it and diving into it so there's a lot of other causes out there and a lot of other issues and you know i think everybody should kind of seek uh what what they what drives them and and what they're passionate about but uh to go but to go live it and go experience it and uh and see uh, you know what um you know what what certain people are experiencing and certain you know issues how we can best approach them and and kind of become more intimately involved. So commend you for your work. We will, uh, uh, well, I'll put up a blog post uh, about this episode, and I'll link to ecodefensegroup.org, but also I'm going to link to your article that you have, I know, up on Medium uh, about, um, you know, uh, was it the Lions of, of uh, uh, Kruger? Is that, you pronounce it Kruger? Kruger? Yeah, Kruger. So, yeah, that's the um, quick reaction group uh, that we've been working with and we're fundraising right now to bring them to the U.S. in uh, about a month and a half from now, which will uh, literally make history. It'll be the wow. first time Rangers from Africa have trained on U.S. soil. And, uh, um, yeah, and I mean, look, I, I think everybody cares about this. I mean, everybody's seen The Lion King. There's a way in which you take for granted um, the way Africa has been sort of transmitted to us. Even people who've gone over and gone on safari, I, I always encourage if you go, you need to take time to – understand how people live there not just how they serve you as you're on safari and come back and also understand like the danger those who are you know uh, you somebody when you're over there uh, every day that you go to south africa for example three rhinos are killed every day by poachers and you know i don't want to say every month but too often a ranger is killed too defending an animal. Wow. And so one of the questions is, you know, why, why give your life for an animal? You know, why is this the most noble calling? And, uh, you know, there are lots of answers. There's, there's the birthright answer. Um, there's the, everything is connected answer, which is true. I mean, whether it's just understanding that with despeciation and poaching comes sex trafficking, comes drug trafficking, arms trafficking, all those things. And look, rhino horn is right now the most valuable material, on this planet or close to it. It's more valuable than heroin ounce for ounce. Uh, it's more valuable than most precious gems, metals, gold, uh, ounce for ounce, right? So the world is clamoring for this and it changes the world. Every rhino horn that goes out there makes a huge impact in criminal syndicates. 
Um, it's much like the drug war in our country, except it has a more, I would argue, global impact. Uh, and the, But unlike the drug war, the end of this is the loss of an animal in our time. And I think we live in a time where that's inexcusable. Uh, we, you know, we have the technology, we have the awareness, we have the international, uh, you know, we have the Internet that connects to everybody in a way that this problem is visible to everybody. And it is inexcusable in the same way that you know, Rwandan genocide or something like it is inexcusable in this day and age. There's no that happened on the other side of the world and I didn't know about it. That doesn't that doesn't exist anymore. And so the fact that this is so present and happening so rapidly to all of these animals. And I think that there's a the, the biggest answer, though, is that as humans and this sounds sort of meta, but bear with me, you know, as humans, we are sort of ultimately judged on how we treat um, those the defenseless and animals that have like the rhino evolved to have no natural predators. We are our birthright in part as stewards of this planet is to be stewards of these animals and exploiting them. I'm not talking about hunting. I'm not talking about whatever, but I'm talking about poaching animals uh, is something on which we will be radically judged. I think because it is, um, it is how we treat that, which we should be, you know, are called to be or sort of our birthright is to be stewards of and uh, exploiting those animals for gain um, is a really, really it's, it's a hard thing to tolerate once you see how people live in harmony with them. Yeah. You know, well, suddenly it clicks. Yeah, well, I uh, really commend you, Nathan, for your uh, passion on this and, and, uh, you know, bringing this uh, awareness to others. And uh, uh, again, we'll link to all these things in uh, the blog post and and hope that others can follow, uh, you know, the ecodefensegroup.org and and see what you're doing there. We're going to shift gears here because I I know uh, your time is limited. But um, before uh, we go, um, it's been fascinating to talk to you about everything you've done in the, uh, you know, transitioning, um, your career, um, to, you know, comic books, uh, comic book writer, uh, movies, uh, taking that, those, uh, comic book stories to the, uh, to the big screen. I know you're involved in a lot of projects right now. And then of course your philanthropic interest, including, uh, the, uh, the eco defense group, uh, edge. Uh, and so, um, one of the things, though, I want to, you know, this is something I've been asking sort of the last six or seven guests on my podcast. Uh, it kind of came as an inspiration from uh, U.S. Senator Ben Sass, who wrote a book that I read earlier this year called The Vanishing American Adult. And there was just something in there. That book actually wasn't, uh, even though he's a senator, it wasn't really uh, much about politics. It was all about culture. But one of the things uh, that he said is when he meets uh, America, you know, any, any Americans or anybody he meets, one of the, the questions he likes to ask people is, what was your first job? Because he said it tells him a lot about uh, the person and, and their background and their experiences. Uh, and so he, uh, I thought, you know, this is a podcast with a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, I would love to uh, know that about some of my guests. So, uh, Nathan, uh, what was your first job? My first job? Um, my first real job? Well, it could be it could be anything. It doesn't have to be, you know. Uh, but but tell me what your first real job was. Well, yeah, I'm thinking beyond mowing lawns and things like that. I um, I worked for a recording studio in Augusta, Georgia, doing uh, helping with the video editing side. But I also worked on the recording side, and I I, I mean I was very young when I started that, and then 
yeah, it was a small studio. I, I learned a lot, ended up recording some bands and uh, um, doing some studio engineering. But that was that was my first job. And, uh, and what, what were you? Yeah, I had a passion. How old were you then? It was I was not old enough because my next job was at Best Buy. And I had to be 15 or 16 to work at Best Buy. So I was not old enough. So I must have been 13 or 14. So this was uh, in the recording studio. Uh, what did you do, and uh, and what what kind of uh, experiences or skill sets uh, have you brought out of it? Um, that's a good question. I you know I started to help with on the video editing side, and then I ended up actually getting trained um, in the equipment and in editing techniques and recording techniques to work on the audio side and i traveled and did live sound with some bands and stuff too um i think you know one of the things i remember learning kind of harshly a couple times one was um uh uh, deliverables you know learning that well you know this has to be done and it has to be done by this time and nobody's going to do it but you um because i remember a couple times just sort of thinking well it'll get done you know and learning that lesson like you know this this is a small you know, this is a small world and, uh, you know, no, nobody, things don't just get done. And, and I remember learning to, um, uh, like recording audio is very unforgiving. So, uh, you can't cut corners or just sort of, you have to be incredibly precise. Um, uh, my grandfather was, a uh, an admiral in the Navy and he was a chief general surgeon for VA hospital. He was a world renowned surgeon, writer, all kinds of things. Um, he one of the quotes he passed on to me through my dad was there's always room for excellence and i remember a time when i'd recorded somebody and thought i'd done it everything just right and there was a um a hum from a truck a big truck had passed by outside or something you could hear it on one of the tracks and i remember like oh that's fine we'll deal with it later and we get to the final product and we're all listening to it and people are saying what is that noise you know, we've recorded, it's weeks, months later, whatever, it's mixed, it's recorded. Finally, we're all listening to it, and I had done everything, and we're listening to that little hum. And I remember that quote, you know, either maybe I thought about it later or something, but thinking, there's always room for excellence, and I totally half-assed that. You know, I just said, yeah, you know, we'll fix it later. And it's it's very much, you know, building that, that brick wall. So I remember that being one of my takeaways. Um, we also, we goofed around at that place a lot, and... Uh, um, it was, uh, you know, I remember too understanding like there's, there's, there's room for that, but there's also room for fun. You should have great collaboration with the people you work with. Um, because I've worked in environments where people are unpleasant, unhappy, they're not fun to work with and productivity, you know, diminishes radically and you're not, you know, you should foster a work environment where you are thrilled to run into work in the morning. And I know that's hard to say for, you know, jobs that, can be incredibly difficult, but um, the people you're around, no matter what the job is, that's something. And I was fortunate enough to have that there, and it was a contrast to other jobs I experienced later on, where I, you know, man, I, I don't want to go sit around these people because there's not a fun collaboration. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I learned a lot there. I also I got I got let go at one point. I think I got welcome back. I don't remember, but because I was too expensive. Um, basically they said, we can't afford you. And I, I learned something there. Like you're, I remember in my job in DC, um, what was the quote? He says, you, uh, he says, as an employee here, he's talking to the whole group. He says, never think that you are the best person for the job. You're the most qualified person who's willing to do it for the least amount of money. 
you know, and so right, yeah. when you're in a, you know, that that's a there's, that's a nice bit of humility to carry with you when you think, you know, you're a rock star. What you do is to say, oh wait, you know, at, at some point, uh, I could price myself out of this, and uh, at some point, I'm not worth the money, and uh, um, you know, it's a difficult thing about ascendancy and work, and I learned that lesson there too. Well, fantastic. Well, it sounds like you, you learned a lot early on, a uh, hard worker, uh, independent in, in some ways, uh, and uh, you've taken that into a lot of different areas in your life. And uh, so we, uh, we wish you well. And I know for those who want to follow your work, they probably just got to Google Nathan Edmondson uh, because that's how things work nowadays. But I know that um, there is a website uh, about your work, nathan-e.com. And then um, I know you're on Twitter. What is it? At Nathan Edmondson. Is that, is that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm. So people could probably find I mean, I, you I'm, all over the place. Just uh, Google Nathan Edmondson, and then of course uh, the EcoDefenseGroup.org, uh, which is one of his uh, big causes. And and again, we'll put some links in our uh, in our show notes here, um, and also in the uh, blog post. So uh, Nathan, I just want to uh, to thank you so much for uh, being on the uh, Agents of Innovation podcast. Oh, thank you so much. This is a really cool project that you've got, and I've really enjoyed listening to it, and uh, you know, I'm learning a lot. Well, thank you. Well, we've learned a lot from you, and we're going to continue to, and we'll continue to follow your work and see uh, what's next for you. So thanks, Nathan. Thank you. When you are young and love's a dream A floating through a forest tenderly There are branches along the way That sometimes make us go astray But you know that it's the truth When I say that I love you I could never tell a lie We are beginners, you and I Came inside and slammed the door You stole my food just for a taste And that time you said it wasn't worth it to you I stayed with arms around your waist Although I'm scared we're way too young We will never say we're done Cause tears of love and pain will cry But we are beginners, you and I